All right. We're in Revelation still. And we're doing the seven letters to the seven churches. And last time, I believe, we finished Smyrna, which takes us now to Pergamum. Pergamum means mixed marriage. If you look at the uh, Greek word for gamete or polygamy, uh, they all come from the same root having to do with women. Pergamos, yeah, means is, is basically a mixed marriage. Okay? And as we're looking at the churches from several perspectives, the first perspective obviously is that they are to real churches that have real pastoral problems that Yeshua is trying to straighten out. The second perspective is that each one of us, to varying degrees in our own lives, exhibit characteristics of these churches. Certainly, each of us likes to think that he is the epitome of uh, Philadelphia, but i got to say that few of us are. So they're (laughs) homiletic in that sense. Uh, And then the third perspective is that they're prophetic. And they represent stages of the development of the the church over the last 2,000 years. So we, Smyrna was the church under persecution. And one of the things that comes out of persecution is compromise. So if you are standing firm for your faith and all the people around you are standing firm for their faith and they're all getting slaughtered, then their one human tendency is, well, surely we can come to an accommodation here. In in fact, it reminds me of a cartoon uh, I saw years and years ago, a crusader and a Saracen, right? And the crusader is up on his horse and he's got his lance, and the Saracen is laying down on the ground like this with the Saracen's lance pointing at him, and the Saracen is saying... So, tell me more about this Christianity of yours. I'm terribly interested. <laughs> and, but anyway, the point is, after persecution, one of the reactions to persecution is compromise. And that's what you have in Pergamon. And that's why it's mixed marriage, because in Pergamum, they start in the prophetic sense now. I'm talking prophetically. And we'll see that the letter matches that. That the church basically started to adopt pagan ways and pagan practices. So by the end of the church at uh, Thyatira, the church has sort of reached out and grabbed all these pagan religions and just sort of sucked them into the church and just changing the names. Pagan priests became Christian priests, and you know they took off their whatever kind of trappings, and put big old honking crosses on, and just continued to move right along. Vestal virgins became nuns. nuns. Celibate priesthood is a pagan thing. It's not a Jewish thing. So by the end of this, the church has just sort of reached out and sucked in the pagan world because under Constantine, the dynamic changed. You know, before Constantine, the church was persecuted. And the church was the one that was under the lance, so to speak. Well, then Constantine decided he was going to be a Christian. And now everything switched, and it was the pagans who were under the lance. Right? 
So all of these pagans who used to be on top and doing their pagan stuff, all of a sudden discovered, well, this is the new religion on the block. I guess we'll just start. And off they went. Okay? And again, don't get me wrong. Bringing pagans into the church is a wonderful thing if you bring them in as believers. If you bring them in as pagans and just give them a coat of spray paint, it is not a good thing. Okay? And what happened in the, in the history of the church is that they brought all these pagans into the church, which the church will say, yeah, this is a good thing. You know, we're bringing them in, we're teaching them the name of Christ and all that kind of stuff, which they did. But basically they were just, you know, pagans with a coat of glitter. And there wasn't any real serious change as a part of that process. All right, so Pergamum. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. All right, so the sharp two-edged sword we know from other places is the word of God, right? And in fact, I think we know that from the beginning of the book of Revelation here. So keep that in mind now as we read the letter because the sharp two-edged sword is going to inform both what he has a problem with and what he intends to do. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And again, Pergamum was a pagan religious center. And it was the place where the first temple to Caesar was built. Remember we talked about Caesar worship and the cult of Caesar last time? Uh, in the case, in the sense of Smyrna, where they were basically being persecuted and the Jews were not taking them in because Judaism was a religio licita or a legal religion. And if the Jews were seen to be harboring these Gentile Christians without, in fact, legitimately converting them to Jews, the synagogue risked being destroyed for harboring traitors. Okay, so you had persecution by both the pagans and the Jews. The Jews, I think, well, for several reasons. One, of course, you had Jews that legitimately didn't believe, you know, like Paul, uh, who thought that the way was a heresy. And so they were going out trying to root them out for heretical reasons. You also had people that were trying to get them out of the synagogue for political reasons. And then you had all the pagans. So that led to extreme persecution. However, Smyrna was not the center of pagan worship. It was Pergamum. Okay? And that's and that's where that first temple to the Caesar cult was put up. Does yours not say I know your works? Mine says thirteen, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Because okay. King Jimmy has, I know your works and where you dwell. Okay, King James has, I know your works and where you dwell. Yeah, yes. this just has, I know where you dwell. Okay. I'm, I'm in the English Standard Version. Don't know who Antipas was. And the sources that I read doesn't, don't give me any indication, other than that he was obviously martyred and as was a faithful witness. And also Yeshua, in both verse 13, or in 13 says twice, we're talking about Satan's throne and where Satan dwells. So 
the perspective here is Pergamum is a center of pagan worship. And in fact, it was the center of the Byzantine dragon, not Byz- uh, Babylonian religion. And Babylonian religion just moved west as the centers of power moved west. Babylonian religion sort of stays at the seat of empire. And so as the empire moves or the center of power moves, the Babylonian religion moves with it. So it starts in Babylon, not the Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar now, but the Babylon, the original Babylon before that was, again, where the religion originated. And it just moved west as imperial power moved west. The Babylonian religion is thoroughly a worldly religion. It is what, at the end of Revelation, Yeshua will wind up destroying. Did we talk about what the gospel is last time? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the gospel is that God will reach down into the world and will draw his people out of the world system. And the world system, regardless of whether it is Pharaoh in Egypt or the Babylonian Empire or the Assyrian Empire or the Greek Empire or the Roman Empire, is all the same. In other words, it, it, as I say, it's just, just a different veneer on the same system in different places that moves around as power moves around in the world. And the gospel is that God will reach in and take his people out of that. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. We all know the story of Balaam, having been through the Torah lots and lots of times. Balaam was a genuine, bona fide, for real, 100% certified prophet of God. And he, in fact, was dealing with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is not a pagan prophet. Okay? He has a legitimate connection to God. And he used it for purposes that God was not pleased with. And in fact, the Jews say that Balaam was basically the Gentile equivalent of Moses. And that Balaam was given to the Gentiles so that the Gentiles wouldn't be able to complain, well, if you'd given us somebody like Moses, we would be godly too. So what God did is gave them Balaam and said, see, didn't work. That's Jewish perspective. Understand what I just said, that's Jewish perspective on it. But they regard Balaam as being of a spiritual stature equivalent to Moses. And you all remember the story, Moab sends for Balaam, who lives, by the way, up in Haran, right? In other words, he lives in the same place that Abraham came from, and Rachel and Leah came from, and Rebekah came from. So this spiritual line, if you were, if you will, was sort of centered up in that area, and Balaam comes from, if, if not the same family stock, at least the same neighborhood, as Abraham came from. So anyway, Balaam, as you you know, goes down to Moab and gives three prophecies about Israel. And 
desires in every case to curse, and God forces him to bless. And in fact, his blessings are so articulate and profound that they have made their way into the Jewish liturgy. Okay? The motto vu that we sing, how lovely are your dwelling places, that is one of Balaam's blessings. The thing was turned into a blessing by what he intended to be a curse. So at the end of the day, he is unable to fulfill his commission for Moab, and of course that just sort of annoys Moab no end. And what he then does is he tells Moab, I cannot destroy Israel for you. The only way that Israel can be destroyed is if she destroys herself. And the way that you do that is you send prostitutes into Israel and you seduce the men of Israel to mess around with your daughters and start eating food sacrificed to idols and doing strange things. And when that happens, God will turn his back on them and then you've got them. So that's what's being talked about here in the letter to Pergamum. Balaam, who taught Balak, who is Moab, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And that is exactly what the sons of Israel did with the daughters of Moab. Council of Jerusalem backs this out. Those are the things that you are not to do. Yes, yes. Yeah, the comment was the Council of Jerusalem also talks about this. One of the things that is put upon Gentiles is that you not eat food sacrificed to idol, you abstain from blood, you abstain from sexual immorality. The comment was, isn't there something, and yes, in, in Paul, both in Corinthians and Romans, Paul says that a demon is not, or an idol is nothing, and, and that's in the context of, do you get to buy meat at a Gentile butcher shop? Because when you buy meat at a Gentile butcher shop, there's a very good possibility that that meat has been offered to an idol. And you know they, they did the offering, and okay, now we're done, and cut up the carcass and go sell it in the butcher shop. And what Paul says is, don't ask, don't tell, is, is basically <laughs> what it is. It is. Yeah, don't ask, don't tell. In other words, you are not required when you go into the butcher shop to ask where was this, where did this meat come from, as long as it's from a kosher animal, you know, uh, beef, lamb, goat, giraffe, any of those kinds of things, right? So as long as it's from a kosher animal, you're not required to inquire of the butcher whether it had been sacrificed to animals. However, if you know that it's been sacrificed to idols, you are forbidden then to eat it for the sake of your brothers who might see you do it and then stumble themselves. But if somebody offers you a Hershey bar, you are not obligated to say, did you get this trick-or-treating? Okay? You are not obligated to say that. All right. Anyway, so what we've got here, then, is a mixing, if you will, of... Faiths. You've got people, and, and this goes back to Balaam. Remember, the, these are one; these are people who know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yet they have been seduced, literally, into messing around with idols. Okay, so you have a mixed marriage. Verse fifteen: 
You also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Uh, some of your translations will say the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Okay? Now, you remember we talked about the Nicolaitans back under Ephesus. And so in Ephesus, it was, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So in the case of Ephesus, remember, Ephesus is the church that is, or the Torah terrorists, right? They are the ones that are holding fast to doctrine. They are, they are strong for pure doctrine. And in that search for purity, they see the Nicolaitans and they see right through them and they recognize that they are not of God and they hate their works, right? Okay, so now we get down to Pergamos and it's not the works of the Nicolaitans anymore. It's now become the doctrine or the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And oh, by the way, what's Pergamos? Mixed marriage, right? So what you have now is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans has come into the church. Okay? Everybody see what's going on? And oh, by the way, what's the name that Yeshua uses for himself at the beginning of the letter? I got the word coming out of my mouth like a two-edged sword. So if you go back to Ephesus, remember, which is strong for the word, and they immediately recognize that the, the teaching or the works of the Nicolaitans are bad according to the word, Yeshua is coming in now with the word and he is going to go against the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. You see how it all ties together? Have I said that so it's clear? You'll find lots of different commentaries on what the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is. The word means conquer or rule over the laity. Okay? That's, that's what the, the, the word itself means. Laetan is, is what we would call laity today. In other words, the people who are not clergy. So the conquer or rule over the laity. I will gently suggest to you that that's another pagan doctrine. One of the things about the religion of Babylon is that it is heavily mystery-centered. And there were mysteries in all of those faiths that only the initiate were allowed to know. And that, by the way, survives very strongly in Gnosticism. That's one of the characteristics of Gnosticism. And in, in, in Gnosticism, it has reached the stage where the more you know, the more saved you are. And so as you go up and, and you know, pick a Gnostic religion. Uh, what's the one? With, uh, masonry is, is, is a Gnostic religion. There's lots of them. And what they do is basically they have mysteries and initiations and, you know, funny hats and all that kind of stuff. And we, you know, we see the funny hats and we kind of chuckle. But that ain't funny, because what happens is, as you go up, you get initiated into more and deeper mysteries, and the higher you go, then, the more saved you are, if you will. So this is definitely a religion that is based on knowledge and works. Paganism is that way, okay? And so Nicolaity then comes to be the rule of an elite over the laity within the church. And that's as opposed to Judaism. And you all are sitting here. And I am telling you what little I know. Okay, believe me, there ain't anything that I think I know that I'm not sharing with you. 
That doesn't mean that what I know is right, and that doesn't mean that I know everything, but there is no attempt here to say, hmm, well, you got, you got to you know, do this, learn the secret handshake, and you got to you know, wear the funny hat, and you got to come in, and we got to do this little ritual, and then I'm going to tell you the real stuff about God. That doesn't exist here, and that doesn't exist in Judaism. And that's very, very different from pagan religions. Uh, it's very different than what Christianity was under the church, especially in the Middle Ages. They used to kill people for trying to print Bibles. In fact, uh, I, we watched a movie several weeks ago uh, on Luther, and it's put out by the Lutherans, so it, Luther looks really good. Um, <laughs> having said that, however, it's an excellent movie, and I recommend it. it, it it's very, very good about uh, what was going on during the Reformation. And you had people being burned at the stake for smuggling copies of the Bible. Okay? Isn't that why the Catholics were so upset about Luther? Because he printed the Bible in German for everyone to read? That was one of the reasons. I mean, they were upset about him for lots of stuff. I mean, that was one of the reasons. Yeah, one of the reasons, though, is he translated the Bible into German. Sure. So during that time, the idea of having just anybody be able to read the Bible was foreign. And that's a doctrine, I will suggest, of the Nicolaitans. In other words, rule over the laity. And you rule over the laity by having knowledge that they don't have. And they can't have. So what Yeshua is talking against here is this idea that the word of God is not to be available freely to anybody who wants to read it. Okay? And that the knowledge of God is not to be available freely to anybody who wants it. The comment was that's what's called the Dark Ages, and we're going back there. Uh, I, I can still remember, I used, when I was still an Episcopalian, I taught middle school kids, and they couldn't read the Bible. They did not have the vocabulary and the reading skill to read the Bible. And that's deliberate. You know, public schools are designed to prevent children from being able to read the Bible. They don't teach the vocabulary, they don't teach the reasoning skills, and they don't teach um, the reading skills to be able to read and understand the Bible for yourself. So one of the things that public education has done here in the United States is it has basically removed the Bible from a generation of children. And the thing that was originally designed way back in Massachusetts colony, the free public education was designed so that everybody could read the Bible. That was the whole point of a public education, is so you would be able to read the Bible. It has now been flipped across, and they are now denying people the Bible by simply not giving them the skills to read and understand it. And as I've got first-hand experience with bright, upper-middle-class children, not homeschooled children, but public school children, and they just didn't understand it. They, they you know, didn't understand what the words meant. They didn't have the vocabulary, and I'm, and I'm not talking King Jimmy either. It didn't work. Uh-uh. Yeah, the NIV was... Well, I know. The, the Bible publishers keep trying to keep up with the public school, but the public school is digging down faster than they can go down. Verse 16, therefore, repent 
If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Who is them? No. Yes, those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, or the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. They may actually be Nicolaitans themselves, I don't know, but not necessarily. And notice how he is going to war against them. With the word of God. Because again, remember, we'll go back to Ephesus. Ephesus? Ephesus. Yeah, Ephesus was red hot for the word of God, and they had the Nicolaitans nailed. So now, the cure for the Nicolaitans by the time it has become a doctrine in the church, is the word of God. So that's what Yeshua is going to use to run them off. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. All right. Lots of symbols there. I don't know what they all mean, but I'll take a swing at it. And I know you've done some studying, Ray, so feel free to jump right in. Hidden manna. Go back to John six forty-eight through 50. And this is Yeshua's talking. Starting in verse 47. John six forty-seven. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And elsewhere in Psalms, it talks about the manna being the food of angels. And again, we've all been through the Torah enough times that we know that Manna is given on an as-needed basis. Okay, So what you got is you got your daily ration of manna six days a week, except on the sixth day you got a double portion, but normally you got enough to feed you for one day. And if you tried to store it up, or you tried to go into the manna business, or you tried to you know, hoard it, or any of those kinds of things, the stuff would self-destruct, right? Except... On Friday, you got a double shot so that you didn't have to gather on Shabbat. And then it lasted two days without breeding worms and stinking. So the first thing I will suggest to you is, where's Yeshua right now? He's hidden. And, and again, the, the concept of manna is that it's something that comes down from heaven. It's something that you can't store up. It's something that you get as you need it. And in this case, it is hidden. Because Yeshua is being in heaven for these last 2,000 years, is hidden from us. Okay, So what he's saying then is that he will give those who overcome to eat of this hidden manna, which is his flesh, symbolically, right? And so what then does that confer? Eternal life. Eternal life, right? Yeah. So what he's saying is that I will give you eternal life, and then he says that I will give you a new name written on a stone that knows, no one knows except the one who sees it. It's a white stone. All right. Um, stones. The word here... 
uh, I don't have it in Greek. But basically it's used two times in Scripture. Three times if you count the fact that it's used twice here. Okay? So it's used twice right here, and then there's a third time. And where it's used the third time is in the book of Acts. It's Acts 26, verse 10. Depending on what kind of translation you have, it will be Paul cast his vote. Is used the translation that's usually given. And what the way that they would have voted in those days is you would have had two stones, a white stone and a black stone. And you would cast one of those two stones to render your vote on a verdict. This is a court term. Have you ever heard the term being blackballed? One of the things that happens in lots and lots of secret societies, to include fraternities, is whenever you are voting on membership for somebody, every member of the fraternity has a black ball and a white ball. And you put it into a box, either a white or a black ball, depending on whether or not you approve the membership. In many secret societies, a single black ball is enough to get you voted out. In other words, it's not a majority. It has to be unanimously white balls. So to be blackballed is to be secretly rejected. So in, in the case here where you have a, a jury trial, if you will, or Paul is the, basically the Sanhedrin or, or the temple hierarchy. I'm not sure who Paul was involved with. They are trying to decide what to do with people like Stephen. Okay? And they would have had a vote, and they would have voted with stones. And Paul is saying in Acts 26.10 that I put my stone in, and the word under there is the same word as in Revelation. It's a little pebble, basically. And I put my stone in there for death. Okay? So what this is saying, I believe is that Yeshua is putting in his stone for you, and it's a white stone in a judicial sense. Because remember, he's talking about giving them of the hidden manna to eat, which is we're talking eternal life. And he's also talking about basically voting in a judicial process, and he is voting for that they are not guilty. Now we have a new name. And that you want to go to a couple of places. Isaiah 62 For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Okay? So... That, by the way, is the only instance of new name other than in Revelation. Uh, now, there are instances in Scripture where God changes people's names. The, the first one is, of course, Abraham, where it, you know, he comes out of uh, Haran as, as Abram, and then God sticks a hay 
into his name. And of course, those of you who have been studying Hebrew know that a hay represents a breath. So it's Abraham. So what God then does is breathes into his name. Sarah. Sarah became, Sarai becomes Sarah. So what you have then is the breath of God going into their two names. Okay? And oh, by the way, how does God do creation of humanity? He breathes into them. So what you have there, if you will, is a rebirth. And he breathes into them, and it is only after that that they conceive children. Okay? Then you have Israel, who wrestle, Jacob, who wrestles, wrestles with the angel and prevails. And at the end of the exercise, he is given a new name, Israel, which can be translated a number of ways. God fights, uh, prince of God. Uh, several different translations to it. But the point is, when God steps into their lives, there is a radical change made in that a change is symbolized by a name change. And you will see that same thing, I think, happening to Jerusalem. Because what you have is Jerusalem down, degraded, destroyed. Okay, we're in the book of Isaiah, remember? Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, yet at the end of the day... God is going to pick her up, restore her, so that she's a crown, and he's going to change her name. And notice it doesn't say what her name is going to be changed to. She knows. And in Revelation, it says it's a name only the receiver knows. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.